0: Well I didn't think you had
1: it in you.
0: I'm your Huckleberry. Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Fight's not with you, Holiday. I'll beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. Play for blood, remember?
2: I was just fooling about.
0: I wasn't. Whoa, 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 now.
1: Due to an unforeseen technical issue, um, we can't actually bring you our review of Seven Psychopaths because it didn't fucking record, which was very irritating. Um, so instead, you join us about sort of 35 minutes into what would be episode four of Dude and the Monkey. And we started off. Well, went through uh, Seven Psychopaths, which I really enjoyed. Ian enjoyed, but not quite as much as me. Um, but we also missed off Ian's first choice of these one old, one new as well. So we'll take you straight into the action with my first, which I think was my one new, which we'll go into in a second. But apologies if you were waiting for that seven side pass review. And um, we had gremlins beating away at our recording. So we'll be back to hopefully proper and normal and better recording next week. And... Hope you enjoy. Thank you. Yep. Right, my first... uh, I'm going to cover my first one being my new watch. Um, I I watched a film which has been very much maligned uh, from this year. um, And it was The Watch, um, which was originally known as Neighbourhood Watch, um, starring Ben Stiller, Vince Vaughn, Jonah Hill, and our very own Richard Ayerdi. I'm terrible for hey, pronouncing hey. names. I had it, I had it, yeah. Uh, written by Seth, R- Seth Rogen and some of his friends. Um, and, yeah, it, it. I expect it to be fucking awful. Because it looks awful. Everyone told me it was awful. Um, so I expected to watch a really shit movie. And it was alright. You know, it. it's a you know, it Ben's still a ben comedy movie. Uh, it had a few funny moments. It kind of gets lost in itself. The whole idea, I, at first, um, I thought it was just about some overzealous neighbourhood watch guy. I didn't know there was the whole extraterrestrial sort of thing behind it. Mm. Um, and then I, I kind of found out just before I started watching it and thought, oh, shit, I, I actually, I don't want to watch it even more now um, mm. because of that. Um, but it kind of works out all right. You know, Ben Stiller plays a, a manager of a Costco, and he's one of those, you know, get up and go get a type of guys, you know, the really annoying people in the world that are all, yes, boss, I'll do that, boss. He has, like, all these different little clubs that he's formed, and he's one of those people. Vince Vaughan mm-hmm. appears to be a guy where, he, you know, he just wants to have some friends. He's really enthusiastic, and he plays that great. Vince Vaughan character. John Hill playing the... He's slightly psychotic, but just a, he's not really psychotic. He's just a bit dumb. Um, and then, you'll uh, be who just plays kind of a little bit like he's just Moss,
2: really. Um, a little and, bit more confident than Moss, I think. But, yeah, yeah, pretty much.
1: Yeah, he's a little bit more... Socially aware than Moss, sure, um, but yeah, um, I I thought it was it was all right. I I I enjoyed it. It, it has some good moments of comedy in it. Uh, a lot of the time, you watch it thinking, really, that's it, it, it's incredibly broad. Um, but it, I, I just I don't know, I, 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 I don't see how this film could have angered people the amount it seems to have.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. It, 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 Sorry, go on. They're, they're really... I, I, I don't see how there is enough here to hate with the level of what people seem to be throwing it at. I mean, a, a lot of people are saying it's it's their worst film of the year. I, I don't think there's there's enough there to make it that bad. <laughs> I,
2: I, I I, tend to agree with you on this one, actually, I must say. Um, yeah, because I... I, I I watched the watch uh, maybe like last month, and I was tweeting about it, and I got into quite quite a debate with um, uh, Jeff Galasso, um, at London Film Fan, uh, fan on Twitter, who's a a lovely guy, um, very very opinionated but um, as as we all are, and he he seems to hate it with an absolute burning intensity, and I I I just I thought it was fine, you know, it's not one I'll probably ever watch again.
1: Oh no, uh, I'll never watch it again. But, but I just, but
2: the they not good value, aren't
1: they? Yeah, they are. I, I just think there are so many other films you could hate. You know, I, I don't think this, this I don't think this, this deserves people to hate it enough. I don't think it does enough to, to deserve people's either praise or hatred. It, it's, it's a tick the boxes kind of movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it pretty much bombed um, at the box office. Uh, I don't even think it, it broke either. Um, I think, Part of it seems to be the fact that they, they seem to switch it around a lot um I know it was, it was due for release and it got delayed for some reason. Also the change in title never helps a film. any film that seems to have a change in title seems to fucking play like shit um and it was marketed... but like i say i didn't I didn't know it was it it, it had aliens in it until uh, you know a couple of days before that before I decided to watch it so um maybe. I mean, it, it was just bad marketing. Um, also, I think it, it could be a thing that states that Ben Stiller and Vince Vaughn aren't the, the pull that they once were. You know, it mm. used to be that Ben Stiller uh, used to have that thing where it, a Ben Stiller movie would make money. Uh, and I think that the landscape of, of, of American comedy has kind of changed a lot. It's the same thing that's happened to Adam Sandler. It used to be... Adam Sandler got paid twenty million plus a film because his films would make two hundred million plus easy, um, and now that that kind of uh, has stopped, Ben Stiller isn't pulling in, you know, huge audiences anymore. He's not; his films aren't making that much money. Um, so maybe that that's part of it. I mean, if, if you look back over his movies of the past sort of five six years. um you know, with the exception of the, you know, his movies where he's in them, with the exception of uh, the um, Fokker's movies, the Meet the Parents movies, you've got sort of stuff like um, Tower Heist didn't really do that much. Um, Tropic Thunder kind of crashed and burned a little bit. And other than that, he's kind of, he's kept himself out of the the limelight and tried to sort of find a way to do um, Zoolander 2, which... Judging on the amount of sort of box office that he's had the past sort of, you could go really as far back as you know sort of 2004. You know, for nearly 10 years he's not he's not pulled in the the, the books that he used to.
2: I mean, I think the the problem with Ben Stiller as well is that he doesn't really challenge himself. Like the roles that he does are kind of, I. Like, like the night in the museum films and and the watch like, like along came Polly or whatever it's just like he's usually the every man nice guy who you know occasionally says some funny stuff he he doesn't seem to really like do anything else these days it, it is it, it, yeah i mean i i think it's definitely hampering him and i mean it's kind of like vince Vaughan as well like i because the thing is that the Vince Vaughn character, it, you know, it it was good the first few times, but as it it kind of rinsed and repeated, it for me it, it's definitely lost its mojo. I mean, between this and the dilemma, um, Vince Vaughn I think does need to like take a fucking look at himself.
1: Yeah, he, he's the problem is is he's doing that that Vince Vaughn character, but He's he's doing more. He's doing a different version of it, almost like he's doing a a hyper version of it within this film. You know, this isn't this isn't the Vince Vaughn we saw in in Dodgeball and films like that. It, it, it seems to be almost somebody doing an impression of Vince Vaughn, um, and I think that's why it, he kind of seems to be running out a little bit. Um, it all makes you a little bit worry for films like like Anchorman two and like Zoolander Two and you know, it makes you wonder are these do these guys still have it in them to produce that what what they produced for those sort of three, four years in sort of between two thousand three and two thousand five where everything they were doing was gold, you know, all that that little generation of kind of the early Apatow cannon all seem to be struggling a little bit to to match that sort of three four year period where everything they were releasing was was a hit.
2: Yeah, yeah, Defo. Um, yeah, I I I, I don't know. Uh, it, it, just the watch. I, it was yeah. I suppose it was a a kind of whole combination of factors, and just the fact that you know this this came out this came out in the summer where there were some truly fucking massive films this summer. And it like the watch just looks a little bit tiddly and in inconsequential by comparison,
1: yeah, you know yeah
2: but i mean if if this had come out, like this would have been a good one to, like maybe come out in, like March or something, you know, like before the big boys really get in there and you, you, you know because I mean, like what did March have like apart from like John Carter, I don't think there was really anything And John Carter basically. Crashed and burned. So I mean, there would have been space they could, for they, it.
1: They could quite literally have marketed this movie and said, "What else are you going to watch, John
2: Fucking Carter?" Yeah, 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 exactly that. You know, it just it does show that Ben and Vince can't really do some blockbuster stuff anymore. And I mean, like it, it just. The, the game has been raised in terms of blockbuster entertainment this year I think um, there have been several like blockbusters don't usually generally feature on my year end like lists but there's there, there's I mean in my top 20, I know for a fact there'll be at least two um and I mean my top my top five will contain one blockbuster you know it just, and that never usually happens. So I mean, like if this had been released a few years earlier, not only would like, their their star wattage be hotter, but I think it would have been a less competitive field.
1: Yeah, the, the 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 big summer movies now are are more action based than than they, you know, there were a, a few years ago. Your big some of your big summer movies were were the big comedy movies, you know. Did, did, and I think that landscape has kind of like you say, has has changed a little bit. I mean this was released, what was it, released a couple of weeks
2: after Dark Knight?
1: So Um over
2: here it was Fright First Weekend. Is it Fright First Weekend?
1: Fucking hell. I mean that was
2: there was some late August.
1: Yeah.
2: Ah. Where it had like Total Recall and Keith Lemon the film to compete with and it still didn't do that great. Shit.
1: Fucking oh If you can't do great against those two, then there's something wrong. Um, yeah. That was that was my that was my one new, which was the watch. Which what I'd say is, if it crops up on Sky or it crops up on Netflix or something like that, and you've got a free afternoon and you want to watch something that you know you you don't have to think about, it's worth a go. There's enough lasting it there to make it watchable, but. It, you know, it, it, it's pretty
2: shit. I, 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 yeah, yeah, I am perfectly watchable, don't see why people hated it nearly as much as they did, I agree. Right, cool, right, what was your one new? Um, my one new was a film that I've been meaning to watch for, like, literally years, and uh, I've seen it as part of Netflix a few times, and um, I I, I haven't watched it because of the profession I'm in at the moment, and it just it all felt a little bit close to home. But I did watch it this week, uh, and it was um, uh, James Foley's Glen, Gary, Ben uh, Ross, uh, which, yeah, yeah, which um, I, I yeah I'm, I'm amazed I, I took as long to get to it as I did because uh, I'm assuming pretty much everybody listening to this has probably seen it, frankly. Um, and, uh, I yeah I really really like to um now one of the reasons why I was um, a little bit hesitant as well is basically I don't like seeing I I like films where like people's kinds kind of lives are like crumbling around them um kind of like, kind like depress me they they kind of weird out in a in a, way, in a way just because um you know like the stress like keep uh, like having a job and keeping it and doing well in your job and not being fired and things like that especially you know with my work situation at the moment where yeah um, if, if people don't know i'm being made redundant in a couple of months it like it it was a shit got real benefit. Kind of what i was surprised about is the fact that rather than feeling sorry and i'm gonna i'm gonna be a bit spoilery about glengarry Ross, so if anybody else i'm um, fast forward a little bit, but i'm surprised at the fact that jack lemon's character is not a, it's not a kind of mining sympathy like feel sorry for this old guy he is a bit of a twat
0: yeah and
2: I, I thought that was a very very brave choice and it made the film more interesting as a result um, because, like, and he's he's deplorable, really. Not, not just for what he does, but like his manner, like the way that he like. There are scenes where he is fucking begging other people, and you you do kind of feel sympathy for him when he's getting shot down. But then when he's on a high, he's chewing out everybody else, and kind of like I'm hot shit, you're cold diarrhea. And watching him get chewed out by people actually turns into a bit of a sadistic joy by the end of the film Um, and I I just I mean there's not really anyone particularly likeable um, even though I'd say probably the closest is Alan Arkin's character who is but he's the one who's kind of like the the guy in the background the most really Um, there's, there's not too much focus on him I mean Al Pacino is fantastic like I love the conversations he's having with Jonathan Price in the bar where at first you're not entirely sure what's going on and it just dawn, it just dawns on you that this is his selling technique. Mm. That, you know, he has these like uh, like on like seemingly deep conversations that like make convince people that he just knows what he's talking about. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go with this even if I'm not entirely sure I'm just gonna go with it and it's it's great. And um, how their little um, arc uh, ends up uh, it was I I I, I, I thought great. Uh, like I say. Um, and Ed Harris and Alan Arkin had conversations, like the way Ed Harris is basically selling to Alan Arkin. Yeah, it, it, like, in, in it, 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 it sorry, I came on stuttering, I don't know uh, I, I I'm trying to figure what to say. Sorry, the hangover's kicking in again. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, uh, just like uh, the way he's trying to seduce anarkin like Al Pacino is John Price, I thought uh, I thought was great. Um, how many times can I say great? In uh, in the middle, of it you've got uh, Alan Baldwin uh, being possibly one of the best cameos of all time, um, with shit that is just quote like, classically quotable as soon as you hear it. Uh, that just like, what's your name? Fuck you, that's my name. And, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah that's amazing uh, and uh, always be closing you know coffee yeah. is for closers it's just, it's stuff you hear around and you know it's from Gary Grand Ross but I just sort of saw it it's just absolutely electric and uh, hearing that um, Baldwin's character wasn't actually in the play uh, I thought was uh, fascinating um and it really really adds to the film because the, the sense of pressure that Lemons character feel you know, kind of like if you come first, you get a Cadillac. If you come last, you're fired. <laughs> it's um, it, it, it's an interesting depiction of the facelessness of people of higher ups in, I mean, in insurance companies, and how their whims, affect, like, can can affect like affect you on a very very personal level, and that's i'm i'm trying to be careful with my words here but that's very much how it's kind of feeling at my workplace at the moment where there's an awful lot of affectations that try to help us out but in the end of the day they're shutting down the building because they kind of uh, because they basically can't run it um I, I, it, it, it's just not cost-effective anymore you know it, it's like the the kind of the, the facelessness of that decision like putting up the sums and how uh, and, and the faceless listening Alan Baldwin, just coming in, how it affects people on a personal level. I mean, like with Al Pacino's character, he's not bothered about it in the slightest because he knows he's great, you know. But then you've got Alan Arkin and uh, and, and uh, Jack Lemon who are just incredibly paranoid about what are they going to do next, how are they going to put food on the table, you know. And that that is a little bit, I I, I think I. Such, I think I'm going to be able to get get a job, absolutely fine. You know, I, I'm not particularly worried about that. But it, it is something that has concerned me in my uh, in my darker moments recently. So um, uh, I don't know. Glenn Garry Ross did actually. I I think I'm getting the point across. Uh, touch me on quite a personal level. Uh, I mean, what did you think about it?
1: Um, I I love Glenn and Ross. I think it's a great it's a great film. Um, it very much it 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 feels like a film that is based on a play. Uh, it certainly has that. To it, but it's peppered with these great little um, scenes. It's a collection of scenes put together, which obviously that's that's how a film works. But this very much is right. This is this scene, then this is this scene, and they all link together. And it's very, it's very kind of um, it it is very staging in its in the way that it's constructed um there's a lot of kind of monologues within it um and they're all very they're very sort of defined versions of the same character you essentially you've got one character and then but what you've got there is you've got Al Pacino playing one version of that character Jack Lemmon playing another Ed Harris playing another Alec Baldwin playing another and Alan Arkin they're all playing a different version of this character um Mm. And then it's how, if you put all those versions together, how will they interact with each other? Um, I think it, 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 it's it's brilliant. Uh, it, it's a really great film. You know, it's it, it's Alec Baldwin at his best. You, you get the feeling that that is that's what Alec Baldwin's like. You know, that's 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 the kind of person he is. He's the kind of person who, if Alec Baldwin wants to chew someone out. His response will be if they try and shoot him down. His response will be, "Do you know why I'm better than you?" And when they go, "Go going why? Because I'm Alec fucking Baldwin and you're not. You get the feeling that that's what he's like. He he's he's doing that. I can talk to you like you're shit because you're not me. You're not (laughs) as good as me. If you were as good as me or you were better than me, you'd be allowed. I'd I'd let you talk to me like this, but you're not. And that's what it is, and it, it very much it, it, it is like that. And again, the similar thing, I've worked in, a, in a, a heavily sales-driven environment, and I've had people do stuff like that. I've had people act like that. Um, however, the ones that I worked with um, reacted in a kind of didn't quite pull it off in the same way um, as Alec Baldwin pulled it off um it, it, it's quite amusing and um, have you ever seen the film boiler room
2: i have not but i um i, I hear that it's a kind of like like an, a bit of an updating of it but not as effective
1: it is it's is very much like that i mean it's got you've got nicky cat jimmie Ravisi, um Vin diesel um and ben affleck um in this movie um uh, which, which attempts to um, pretend that it's Wall Street and it's not it is Glengarry Glen Ross. Um it's worth checking out. It's nowhere near as good as Glengarry Glen Ross, but it's definitely worth checking out.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, d- I see like even the stuff about the you know, the leads and whatnot, I just like the, the desperation of trying to get the good ones. It's um I I get the feel I, I kind of get the feeling from some of the some of the folks I work with that they are like that there are mo the moments where you are kind of desperate and you like the things you try and do and say to kind of convince people to, uh like take things on i don't know it's, it's well played in glen ross but i mean like, thankfully we're not as pressured to do that these days a because we're, we're all under cosh anyway and b because the financial services authority have basically said look you can't bully people into um into take, taking stuff up, you know. But I, it's I, it's interesting. I, I still assume if I share myself with anybody in this, show, it is an arcing character. So I'm just like the one who just wants to come in, do my job, go home, you know, like just not get fired, not get into any trouble, you know. But yeah, I think um, it, it, it highlights very well the the,
1: the blame culture of a sales environment. Um, you you've got Ed Harris and Jack Lemmon's character are both not willing to admit that it's them that's failing, it's because they don't have the good leads or it's because of this reason or this reason or this reason. It's never them. It's all, they're very much, there is that. It's always, I used to get, when I used to work in the sales thing, uh, oh, it's been shit day today. oh, but it was raining, oh, oh, but I got caught doing this, oh, but it, you know, and there was always kind of excuses pattering around. And I very much used to just go, "Uh, if I had a shit day, I'd just go, I had a shit day because I had a shit day. Okay, I have more good days than I do shit days. Uh, But yeah, but I I say if you've ever worked in a sales environment, Glen, Gary, Glen, Ross, although plays a different type of it. it, it, You'll definitely you'll pull out moments within it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I was surprised by how how many there were, and it was actually quite chaotic, quite a chaotic experience, which uh, was nice. It's brisk. Sorry, no, it's like an hour and a half and you've done. So uh, fantastic. It's
1: on uh, UK Netflix. So if anybody hasn't seen it, there you go. Cool. Right. For my uh, rewatch, I'm going to. We're in December now. Uh, and this is actually the second Christmas movie I've watched so far. Uh, I tend to get fully into the Christmas movies as we get to sort of like the week before Christmas, you know, that yeah. 10 that day build up period. That's when I decide, right, that's it. Okay. It's time to watch some Christmas movies. But the first Christmas movie I always watch is Christmas Vacation, uh, but that's not the movie I'm going to talk about, because I'm going to watch that again before Christmas, I'm sure. And I'm going to talk about it closer to Christmas. Um, nice. The movie I'm going to talk about is, uh, is Home Alone. Um, <laughs> this is a movie of, of my childhood. Um, I mm. remember going to see this at Christmas in 1999. Funnily enough, in the same screen that I saw Seven Psychopaths in today. Oh, uh, well. And the exact same screen is weird. Um... So, came out in 1990. I'm sure everybody has seen Home Alone. Um, written by John Hughes. Again, I'm still sitting me ticking off the John Hughes movies, but directed by Chris Columbus. It is the film that gave us Macaulay Culkin, the gift that kept giving for, like, three years <laughs> and then retired. Um, uh, but it's only when I start watching this movie after, like, not seeing it for a year, do I start watching it and going... Holy shit this is a fucking this isn't just a good Christmas movie this isn't just a it warms your heart to watch about chris around Christmas time This is a really good family movie It's difficult to to find a good family movie you know you can go out there and find an entertaining family movie or you can go out there and find something that you can put on that you know kids will sit and watch you know that's not that's not hard it's not difficult to do. But it's very difficult to make a really good family movie. A movie that has it is entertaining enough without and also is it, it, entertaining to every level from um sort of five, six year olds up to, you know, sixty, seventy year olds, you know, that covers all those bases without doing the ah uh, wink wink, sexy innuendo kind of thing. Um it, it is just good, clean fun. Um I don't know, bore people with the fucking story because everyone knows it. But the one thing that really stood out for me this time, watch I think you get different things from it at different times watching it. Is I, I for the first time, and I must have seen this movie 20 plus times. Um, it's the first time where I've really sort of watched it and gone, God, that the last 20 minutes of that movie is just this great stunt-based slapstick comedy that is played out so magnificently well. You've got Joe Pesci slipping backwards off stairs, you know, on ice and slamming himself down. You've got the him getting his head burnt with a blowtorch. You've got an iron hitting somebody in the face. You've got the nail through the foot and the paint cans. You've got all these great moments that Joe Pesci and Neil Stern kind of, they both managed to pull off with this great kind of reverence and almost like, sadistic enjoyment. Like it's not they're not robbing this house anymore. They they stopped robbing the house. They're simply there to get him. But yeah, yeah, yeah. you kind of think like, it like it 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 stopped being about that. It's now about catching this kid for tormenting them, for for basically stopping them being able to rob the place, and there's just some there's some great, great moments like the the paint kind of hitting in the face and him landing on his stomach, and you know the I'm missing a tooth, you know, and that that little bit and the the bit where Macaulay Culkin's Kevin character places the tarantula on Daniel Stern's face, that scream is one of the greatest <laughs> screams in film history because there's a real there's a real fear and a richness behind it it's not like a it's not a generic comedy scream it's not yeah. an ah and sort of run around it's it's from like it's from the real back of his throat there and it, it feels real um and i just it, it, i like i enjoy watching films that you know that you like and you know you know you like them but then when you watch them you made you're reminded of all the reasons why you do like them, and all the reasons why, you know, you've liked it for a, a number of years. I mean, this this is a this film's like 25 like, years old, and I've watched it from being sort of eight years old to now being 30 years old. That's that's a full progression of life, you know, watching one movie really. Yeah. And when I was eight, I liked. You know that end 20 minutes, I'd have liked it because it was a kid that was roughly the same age as me, getting one over on the adults and then as you move through, there's different bits to enjoy and different bits to get out of it and it's I just think, it's a great movie that because it's a holiday movie it doesn't seem to get the the praise that it deserves because it's lumped in as, this is a great Christmas movie, and it's like, well hang on a minute it's more than just a great Christmas movie it's a fucking great family movie
2: uh yeah, I'm just I'm I'm in agreement to be honest. And I, I take it uh I take it you've to it.
1: Well we got we I will be honest, we bought Isabel it for I think it was when she was four, five, I think we bought it for Christmas one year. Um and yeah, she she loved it. She she's watched it uh, you know she watched it with me the day I have no doubt she'll watch it again on her own before Christmas, um, which is great that you know that these films are still being watched. Um, in similar case to, I'll talk about it in a future podcast because I want to talk about it the week before Christmas. Um, in Christmas vacation, it's great that these movies are still being watched, you know, twenty five years later. Absolutely. Right, so that brings an end to our one old, one new, and we're going to get into our. Uh, topic debate. Which I'll, I'll let you introduce here. Um,
2: yeah. So, a uh, big uh, kind of a uh, pretty big news for um, UK theatrical exhibition uh, this week was um, uh, the announcement that Cineworld had bought uh, Picturehouse, house me, which is a chain of about um, twenty or so sites. Is it?
1: Uh, it's, it, it will be. It, it, I think there's, there's about 12 at the moment. I think.
2: Oh, it's 12. And and yeah, they're they're planning on opening like a 10, aren't they? Um. So uh, yeah, they, they got um and it uh inspired quite a lot of um discussion on Twitter from people on like both sides of the argument about whether or not this is whether this is a good or a bad thing. Um now Cineworld are w- actually with um I think they are soon to overtake Odeon uh, as actually being the uh the largest uh, cinema chain in the UK. Um I mean I, I suppose everybody in the UK knows this, but the main three like players in, in cinemas in the UK are um, Cineworld View and Odeon. Um and there was and there's been a general it kind of a sense of worry, I suppose, that uh, the house brand, which is very much focused on kind of like more indie-spirited um, films and like generally kind of good standards in terms of like technical quality and whatnot, um, because Cineworlds are, you know, basic, are quite quite a mainstream brand. Um, now mark you actually um kind of like work at or i suppose kind of volunteer in a way um for the uh picture house in york so um i mean i I've never actually been to picture house so i mean I, 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 I might be thinking right on kind of what people kind of go them for
1: yeah they i mean they're essentially um they're high street art house cinemas and there are the ideas I and mean, they have They do show films like Skyfall and Twilight, but also you'll get them, for instance, Sightseers, you know, they'll definitely show that. You know they're going to show that. But also, they show, uh, they have like stuff like on a Tuesday, they always show some kind of cultural relevant film. So if you're looking for somewhere to go and see Mother, for instance, when that came out, A couple of years ago, um, the Boon Jong Ho film, and I saw that at at Pitch House. Um, And it's a way to see these films where if you don't live in London and you don't have access to 35 cinemas in a a, a 12 mile radius, um, for you to get those films, and they'll show, you know, French cinema, and they'll show Japanese cinema, and they'll show the, the little British films, but they'll also. I mean, last year alone, I saw uh, Apocalypse Now, and Taxi Driver, and recently they did a, um, a Stanley Kubrick season where they showed Clockwork Orange and Full Metal Jacket and uh, Lolita and Doctor Strangelove and uh, 2001. You know, and um, you know, the ideas behind that is these films, when they came out, they came out before um, home media, before. We could get Netflix before we had love film before um, VHS even. So you only got opportunities to see these films at a cinema, and I think the the thrill of that has kind of uh, has kind of gone a little bit out, out of cinema. People, you'll hear the oh well, I'll wait for it to come out on DVD, or I'll wait for it to come out on Blu-ray, or I'll wait for it to come out on Netflix, which is it is fair enough. I do that that quite often, but there are some films that you've got, you know, that, that you know you've got to. But there's some films that where, where it's an experience going to watch it on a big screen. Uh, for instance, I I'd seen Apocalypse Now on the big screen. I saw it years ago on the big screen um, at City Screen, actually, funnily enough. Um, I've seen it dozens of times on VHS, um, DVD, and now Blu-ray. But the minute I found out that was showing, I still wanted to go and see it again because it's an experience watching it on the big screen. I'd never seen Tax Drive on the big screen. I have now. And it gives you, they give you that. Um, Now, I have one of my closest friends um, works at, uh, I'm not going to mention his name because of what it but works at the city screen. And I texted him when I saw it um, on, came up on Twitter saying that They've been bought out, and I texted uh, and all I put in my text was, Fucking hell, Cineworld, where's that come from? And then the response I got back from him was, Oh, fucking don't, I'm getting shitloads of abuse for this. Uh, I was like, What? And he said, You know, that he's had people texting him and tweeting him saying, oh, It's fucking terrible, and all this lot. And my immediate response was, Well, why? Why is it terrible? You know, and then I sort of went to Twitter and sort of looked, and there was a bit of a, I like, thought, oh, this is terrible, it's it's, it's horrible, and, you know, it's going to destroy them and all this stuff, and I I kind of looked at it, you know, the other way is Picturehouse, um, from the way I view it, is Cineworld have bought House. they haven't bought House out, House isn't in financial trouble, and they've they've saved it, and. They've looked at it and gone, right, as Cineworld, we cover the um, mass market appeal, and we cover, you know, if you want to come to Cineworld and there's four new big releases, we're going to be showing them on two screens if possible. You know, we're going to be able to show Hobbit on 48 frames per second 3D, we're going to be able to show it on 24 frames per second 3D, I'm going to be able to show it on 2D. And we're gonna be able to do two screenings of each of them at the same time. So you're gonna be able to see that film over six screens. Mm. You know, and that probably will happen. Whilst at the same time still having Skyfall on, still having Twilight on, and still having the couple of other movies that, that they that they need to have on. Pitch House can't do that. Um they're not gonna try and do that. So the way I look at it is it it's a transfer Cineworld to kind of go hang on a minute, you know, instead of trying to, I'm going to use sightseers as an example on this, instead of trying to fit sightseers into this already packed schedule we've got, why don't we, instead of saying, you know, we're Pitch House at the moment, well, that Pitch House has got three screens, and it's showing Skyfall, Twilight, and something else, why don't we say to them, right, Twilight's been out a couple of weeks, lose it, there you go, bang, sightseers on, and Cineworld will sort of they'll they'll pick up the slack a little bit they'll they'll go well you know more people are going to go and see sightseers at a picture house than there is going to be come and see it at a Cineworld because that's the audience that that's their environment that's not our environment people will come see it if it's the only fucking place they can but they're not going to the person who who, who wants to come see sightseers isn't going to isn't going to log on and go oh I wonder if Cineworld is showing it. If they've got a picture house close to them, they're going to look and go. Is picture house showing what? It'll be what time is picture house showing sightseers? And so maybe that's their way of doing that. Maybe they've looked at it and gone right. We're covering all the bases now. It means that we don't have to find a slot for these films. We and you know also as well, we can kind of say, well, you know, look at what we do for all levels of cinema. So if someone says to Cineworld, World, oh. You know, you you don't support little cinema. You only support the big blockbusters. They can go no, because our you know our art house cinemas, picture house, show these films. You know, and it's it's their way of of, of kind of of having all bases covered without kind of trying to take on picture house.
2: Uh, yeah, that's yeah. I could I could definitely see that happening, and I I think it's it's also I think important to know that in terms of like the big brands of like a, a theatrical exhibition in the UK. I think Cineworld are the most progressive uh, in terms of their content and how they and like pricing and things like that. I mean, um, you know, the fact that Cineworld are the only chain the only chain that does a kind of like unlimited thing mm. still kind of blows my mind that like the other the other um things don't I um, must not think it's cost effective. Um yeah I I mean I, I have problems with Sinn um there like in with Seven Cycle this week we had uh, trailers for Alex Cross which had uh, which had already been out by then uh, and seven psychopaths before seven psychopaths whoa <laughs> um, uh, yeah it was, and yeah bizarre and i don't know how that how that kind of thing happens but like technical problems seem to happen quite a lot um, and it's it would be things like that that i would be worried about with pitch house but then again they have make it very very clear that it's going to be as usual, and then not going to change anything. Change anything, and just in in terms of who's in are, world, I have more respect for Cineworld than I do for Odeon or Vue. So it like if you were buying Picture Picturehouse, to be honest, I'd be terrified. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Um, just because they, I mean they are the most the most mass market chain out of, out of any of them. I mean they they are. They will just put on the, the stuff that they know is going to put buttons on seats, they're not, they're not going to take chances. Whereas in the world, I mean, um, you know, they're, they're not as wide ranging like in terms of indie stuff as Pidge House, but my in world did have some ideas, you know, um, um uh, they had Thomas, uh, Thomas Vincent The Hunts, you know, uh, at least at least they're trying these things, but that your your point about just like playing with Big House instead, I, I think. Very very interesting. It'd be interesting to see in like a year's time when they have opened up new sites, uh, how different this the Cineworld kind of programming ethos will be because of the the pitch house party. Um, yeah yeah.
1: I think I think it, it's definitely. I the big thing I think um, Mark Hermer put across is you know, and a big thing in the statement was from Cineworld was you know we want to see what we can learn from then about the cinema-going experience because uh, I think the whole thing that kind of brought it to attention was there was a recent study done by some marketing people within Cineworld where they looked at customer satisfaction um, ratings um, and they looked at themselves, View, uh, Odeon and um, Pitch House were brought into it as well. And the way that they saw it was they came out quite well against Odeon and they came out quite well against View. Um, and they also came out quite well against Picture House, but apparently, what the Pitcher House audience expected was so vastly different to what mm. the Cineworld and the View and the Odeon audience expected. It was such a a culture shock to them that, that it maybe made them look at it and go, Right, maybe if we can, maybe if we can take a little bit from there, put a little bit of the way that we market into it, because I, I love my pitch house. I you know I I volunteer at the pitch house. Um, I enjoy doing that. There's a lot of good people that work there. Um, but my issues as a consumer that I have with pitch house, and it's the only issue I have with it, is they're terrible at marketing. Um, I don't think they, it might be different to other ones, but I think that they they lack something in the marketing. And I, I think a large portion of that is simply that pitch House that are run on such a tight budget, not they don't have any money, it's just the fact that as a company, they know that it, it, it's, it's a precarious industry running a cinema um, and running it the way they run it. Um, They can't afford to overstretch themselves one way. So marketing is something they've got to kind of, they've got to do it very much an in-house thing. So maybe Cineworld can help kind of, you know, maybe sort of change that a little bit. But then again, I think that on a whole, um, cinema advertising, uh, cinema chains, I don't think they advertise that much. They let the films advertise themselves and then they just sit and wait for people to come. You know,
2: well, yeah, yeah. I mean, when was the last time you saw a TV ad for Odeon?
1: Exactly. Um, I think, you know, that, that's that's maybe a part of that. Maybe it's just that Cinema Chains don't, don't advertise. So maybe, maybe I, I'm, you know, I, I'm looking in the wrong place there. I'm expecting a little bit too much from it. But, um, I mean, the basic thing is this this. what I'm trying to get across is what would, what would you do to improve? You, your average. So you've got three points that you can do to improve your cinema-going experience. Um, what are the three things that you would ask all cinema chains to do to improve your cinema-going experience?
2: Um, have someone dedicated to projection. At least one person. Yeah. Um, you know, they they, they while the films are running, they can uh, you know manage on, on the floor as well or something like that. But it's, I mean, just from personal experience, um, that as a former productionist and kind of like now in just watching films uh, at cinemas now, it it it, it needs more attention. Considering it's the reason why people are going to your business in the first place, it's kind of amazing how little thought seems to be on projection and and just I just those things like I said. And psychopaths, making sure they're playing the wrong fucking trailers mm. you know it, 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 it's not hard uh, and it just it's just projection now seems to be a side issue for man- project uh, for cinema management but it really should be a big thing um i mean so yeah i mean that would definitely be one um i would uh say Pricing. Um, if all cinemas did something like animated, it would be absolutely fun. But oh, it would be brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I I think a lot, you know, cinemas are maybe pricing themselves out of, you know, like with like 3D and whatnot, like IMAX 3D, just how much that shit costs, you know. But um even though I even though I will, I think it's I think it's interesting that for the high frame rate 3D for the Hobbit. I've noticed none of the cinema's charging any extra for it. I mean, Um,
1: I I was was quite surprised in that. But I think the reason why is 3D, you can explain something. You can explain it quite easily. It's three-dimensional. It'll jump out at you. IMAX, it's quite easy to explain. You know, it's fucking huge. It's a screen the size of, you know... Of 8 billion buildings stacked up on top of each other, you know, yeah. It, it, yeah. it's that. Whereas 40 frames a second, it's like, it, 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 it. There's, yeah. There's, there's yeah. no, yeah. there's no punch that they can throw out. So they could have charged an extra quid. But two things. One, it would have set a precedent. I can't see many other directors now going, oh, fucking hell. I can, for instance, Martin Scorsese isn't sat there going, do you know what? I could do a 48 frames per second movie because it, it it doesn't seem to be. It's not a hook. It was a directorial choice by Jackson. It was a, a chance to try something. Um, and I don't think it's the same hook that 3D is. We're not gonna. You're not gonna see. Um, you know, for instance, Madagascar Four isn't gonna be called. Madagascar, forty-eight frames per second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, Look, no, i gonna an idea, no? I it probably is gonna be called that. Let's just let's just see it right now.
2: I came up with that idea first. <laughs> um, I, 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 I mean, like in terms of that it, it, it's gonna be interesting because again, I mean, a high frame rate thing. It's just another way of cinemas trying to do an experience that you can't you can't get at home. Um, but I suppose also my third, um, my my third uh, kind of way of improving it. It's interesting. Picturehouse. It sounds. It seems to me like the folks who work for Picturehouse actually like films, and it always has baffled me. Like working at View, and um, I kind of know if, I know a few people who work at the Cinema Cineworld um, who used to work at the View. Just how people in, who work for cinemas, including the management, actually seem to like films. And I think there's a lack of care that's kind of inherent with the fact that you you're not taking the job as seriously as maybe you should. Um, so I don't know, it's a bit of a general one, but I, I would say employ more people who like films.
1: Yeah, it, 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 it sounds patently obvious, but yeah, but yeah I, I completely see so what you mean. I mean, there are um, I'll be honest, I, you know, from from kind of pretty much all the staff that work at the Pitch House and. Um, Ninety percent of them um, do like film. They do have an interest in film. You know, five or six of them over the past few years are, are actually filmmakers themselves. You know, and have gone on to, to, to make you know feature films and you know nothing nothing that's, that's achieved too much too much success yet. But they're definitely on their way. And you know, I, I wish them all the luck in the world. But. It always does baffle me when you get one of them that says when you'll say, oh, "Have you seen blah?" Yeah, and they'll go, "Oh, what?" Like, eh, um, "Oh, okay." And they say, "Oh no, I don't really watch that many films." Like, in a fucking cinema, yeah, yeah. you know, this is this is a dream job for some people, you know, and I think that it's the state of cinemas that stops it becoming that dream job. I know um, my girlfriend that works there doesn't like going to the cinema at his own cinema because it's too much like going to work. Um, and maybe that's it. it. It is one of those things, you know. I'd love to work in a cinema. Maybe if I actually fucking worked there, I'd hate it. But it's the idea, it's the romanticism of working in a cinema. And I don't know you, you, you had it, you know. It, it was a great idea of working in a cinema, but the fact is, at the end of the day, it's still a job, and there's still all the shittiness that goes with any job that, that, that will kind of creep in there. Uh, but... And going back to the, the, the three points of how could we, you know, how would you, what is it um, improve cinemas I completely agree the projectionist thing needs sorting out um, not only, I'd I, I broaden that and say that um, it, it's an equipment thing um, the projectionist um, is a vital tool I think in in showing the film you know, you have certain things in a cinema, people go to a cinema to see a, a film on the big screen Because of the screen and, you know, you can't afford to put a big screen like that in your home. You can't afford to put the speakers that litter the walls and go everywhere. You know, you can't do that at home. So if I'm going and I'm paying, you know, £10 plus to come and see that movie there, I want it to be projected by somebody that knows what they're doing or at least be, have a person there to, if, pressing a button you know, that, 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 that knows to do more than to go start. I want to have somebody there who can do more than that. Number two, I want a fucking screen that is in good working order, that doesn't have dull patches or light patches on it, that doesn't flicker every so often. And also, I don't want to be sat watching a film where in the back of my head I'm going, that third speaker across is hissing. Or, yeah, yeah. The speakers behind me aren't working. I don't want that. Um, and one thing I will say is, I know that uh, a very local pitch house to me, their in one of their screens um, last year, um, the speakers went, mm. and it was fixed pretty much instantaneously. You know, it was only like a couple of the speakers went, but they were fixed straight away, and it was because. They care, as a company, about that kind of thing. I've been to the same screen twice in the past year at um, at View. And I know, in that view that three of the six speakers running down one side don't work. Um, yeah. Not that they, they hiss or they muffle or anything like that. They flat out don't fucking work. I'm paying £10.70 to go and see that fucking film. You should yeah. yeah that should be a priority that you fix those things. Second one, I'm sorry, but it, it's going to be a fucking bugbear to, to me until it gets stopped, right? And it's it's a part cinema's responsibility and it's a part people who go to watch films responsibility, right? When you're buying your ticket, instead of saying, "Do you need any drinks? Do you any popcorn?" they should add, "Could you please respect other cinema patrons? Not use your phone." And not torture in the film. Otherwise you will be, you will, you will be kicked out. Because it, it is becoming now the norm. Where I go, for instance, Seven Psychopaths. I sat down and I was the only fucking person there. And I thought, it's amazing. I'm going to be the only fucking person here for this film. It filled me with the wonder. And it's not because I could get my phone out and I could start... What is it? It's not because I didn't have to feel bad about laughing at the bit that I wasn't supposed to laugh at. There was none of that. It was because at that moment, I thought, nobody is going to come in here and piss me off by looking at their phone or talking. And then as the BBFC thing came up, a couple walked in and sat down. Bearing in mind, this movie, was due. uh, the entrance for it was... One o'clock. Now I accept that films never start when there's a you know at one o'clock if the entry is one o'clock. It was now half past one. Thirty minutes. I've had the good grace to get there and sit through those thirty minutes of fucking trailers, which I don't mind. That's part of the cinema experience. Now don't mind that. But they got there, started taking the coats off, unwrapping all the stuff as the film starting. And then proceed to start having a 10 minute conversation at the start of the movie. Now, they could have sat anywhere in this yeah. screen, but they've sat on. I was sat on the end seat at the end of an aisle. I always like to do that, in case yeah. I need to go to the toilet, because I have a terrible tiny little girl bladder. Um, they sat on the row opposite, what is it, on the end. They could have sat anywhere else, and if they'd been whispering to each other, I wouldn't have heard them. But I could make out every word they were saying. And I, I, I don't mind, at that point, being an arsehole. I have no, I don't care what people think about me at all. Um, so I had no problem with, that for 10 minutes, turning around and saying to them, sorry, but do you mind, if you can have a conversation, having it outside? Yeah. To which they continued talking. To which pissed me off no end, probably even more, because I was on my own. So it led me to the fact of, right, fine. I've asked you once nicely. This is a fucking cinema. It's not, I'm not being unreasonable to expect you to shut the fuck up. So I kindly leaned over and said, you know, to them, basically, if you want to have a conversation, fuck off to a restaurant and have a conversation. But I want to watch the film, so shut the fuck up. And and they seemed to act like that. It was this big incourteous thing of me expecting them to be quiet during a film. And at the end of the film, I got compelled to sort of say to them, look, you know, why come to a film and start talking immediately as it starts? You know, go somewhere else. But i I'd come to see this film to see the film. I've not come because it's a social engagement. And then it struck me that when I was actually telling them to shut the fuck up, yeah. It was during a moment in the film where Sam Rockwell and Colin Farrell were in a cinema talking to each other. Nice. Um, and the last one, again, would be um, the same as you, pricing. I think cinemas need to... I'm not saying they need, to, they need to lower their prices, but they need to have an idea about value. The one thing that, that, that really pisses me off um, is some cinema change, you're an adult, when you are 12. You pay an yeah. adult fee when you're 12. Sorry, when my daughter turns 12, can I come and take her to see a 15, an 18 film? No, because that's for over 18s when you're an adult, but she has to pay an adult price. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know where kids get the money to see movies anymore. You know, it, it, it baffles me. If, let's say, um, when Life of Pi comes out, I want to take is to see Life of Pi. Me, my wife, my daughter will go and see Life of Pi, right? So that's three cinema tickets, that's some popcorn, and it's a drink. Right? Let's say it's, let's say let's not be even being reached watch three cinema tickets, a medium popcorn, two coffees, and a, a soft drink prisoner, for right? Mm. Forty quid that's gonna be. 40 yeah, 45 yeah, yeah. quid. That's gonna be. For two hours of what will be great entertainment, right? Now I could quite easily get up, go to Asda, H&B, whatever, pick up a Blu-ray, a new release Blu-ray, go to Domino's or whatever, get a pizza, go to the shop, get some popcorn, go home and sit down for 25, 30 quid, own that movie, have that movie for the rest of my life. Yes, it worked with this same going experience, but... It, it used to be a family going experience, and I think that it's financially taking that away from people.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, because I, I know they try and like do like family kind of tickets and whatnot, but it, it is still kind of ridiculous. Like the the, the the like price prices are going up, and then you've got factor concessions and and whatnot. I mean, it, it's yeah, it, it's that's that's brutal. That's brutal. Um, I I mean I know like when, I, when
1: I've i got kids, I'll probably just get them unlimited cards, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would, in a flash, I'd have an unlimited card for myself and my daughter Um, if I had a Sydney world close to me, if, if you decided and went, you know what, that's a good idea, actually, and did the unlimited cards, I'd have an unlimited card for there, um, even though a lot of the time um, I can get in, because I do work uh, at Pitchards, I can get in to see stuff there, but they you know, luckily they don't always show the sort of stuff that I might want to take Isabel. Oh or not that I might want to take, but see, but Isabel might want to go and see. So you've got that kind of there. Um, I think going back to our original point of, of, of that, I, I think that I, I think the knee-jerk reaction for oh, it's terrible news to the um City World Pitch House deal. It, it seems to be very indicative of what's going on um, in the. Um, social media verse at the moment uh, where everything seems to be quite dour um, and I think people should just maybe just you know it's fucking Christmas you know yeah. there are going to be positives there are going to be negatives but I would prefer to have a city world owned picture house than to have no fucking picture house there you go cool Right, I think we've 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 pretty much we've pretty much set the the world alight with um what we think cinemas should 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 now do, so Definitely. we're going to play a clip from um our last George Peckers Mattis film um and it is the magnificent Tombstone. Right, that was a clip from Tombstone, the wow, uh, the 1993 western um which was kind of directed by George P. as but we'll come to that in a minute. Um, the idea is this is a story of Wire Earp and his two brothers, Virgil and Morgan, who were played by Kurt Russell playing Wire Earp and Sam Elliott playing Virgil, Bill Paxton playing Morgan. And it's about when they went to the town of Tombstone and were rekindled their friendship with Doc Holliday, played magnificently by Val Kilmer. And how... They were dragged back into the law um, business uh, by a group of outlaws known simply as the Cowboys, which include within their cast, you've got Powers Boothier, Michael Bean, um, Thomas Hayden Church was in there as well, wasn't he? Um, nice. yep. And you've got a couple of other kind of recognisable faces um, sort of littered about the place. Um, of course, this film was made at the same, well, around the same time as Kevin Costner made his own Wyatt Earth film, which was imaginatively titled, wire Earp. Um, and that kind of comes an offshore from this film, because the film originally, uh, it was written by Kevin Jar, which it still was written by Kevin Jarre, um, he was originally directing the film. Um, he then managed to piss everybody off by insisting that his script had to be strictly adhered to, and... Both Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer uh, have said since you know that this script was huge and instead of being about Wyatt Earp and his brothers and Doc Holliday it was about everybody and everybody had these big story arcs and um and Val Kilmer joked I think it was about two thousand and two said if we you know if we'd have gone off Kevin Jarre's script to the letter we'd still be filming it now sure um and so. George Peikus Mattes uh, was brought on to direct, and did so, and got a lot, you know, a lot of critical praise for it. And then after he died, uh, Kurt Russell then decided to come out and say that he kind of directed it, and that maybe uh, George Peikus Mattis was more ghost directing it. That they developed this little secret language. Um, and he kind of nods to him or do something to get him to do something else. Now, I don't know. You know, this is one of these ones where you don't know what's true and what's not, who's to believe or, or whatever, because, you know, Kurt Russell did pick after George Peekers might have died to come out with this claim, but he actually directed it. Um, I know Val Kilmer has kind of said that, yes, Kurt Russell had a lot of influence over it. Um but um, he still says, you know, in my view, this isn't a Val Kilmer film, it's George's film. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's enough in this film that I think you can pull it out as being um, a George Peckers Mattis film. But also, as well, Kurt Russell is firmly one of the good guys, you know, he's not an ego-driven actor, you know yeah, yeah. he's a nice guy, so I can't see him saying this, so people go, oh you know, look how good he is, or anything like that, plus he's not going on to direct anything else, so maybe maybe you, as Kurt Russell views it that is what happened, but maybe if he spoke to Josh Mattis, maybe he'd say, yeah, I let Kurt have a lot of influence on it, and he did say, put in ideas, or anything like that but there's more a directing than saying, "I think we should do this," or,
2: "I think we should do this." Absolutely, I and mean, I I think it's that, that whole thing is interesting because I think out of all the um, Cosmopolis films we've uh, we've looked at, I think this is um, kind of kind of the most stylish. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, um, and, I mean, also the kind of the most the, the most timeless of them. Even though I, I I think that is basically because it is a western. So you know it's not getting any of the kind of of the day affectations. Um, but I i watching it this time round that the, there are quite a lot of shots of like someone's uh, someone's face at the left or right of the frame, and 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 it's kind of like it's focused on them and somebody else kind of in in the background that is in the foreground and it's kind of like profile shot and it, it's. I, I, I noticed a few of those, which I, I thought were very interesting and do do very much feel like a director's intent. Mm. But then the the question of whether that's Cosmatos or Russell, I think that could go any way because you know Cosmatos is a good director, but not there weren't ever there haven't really been that many images in his films that have particularly grabbed me.
1: No, he's he's very much. In his um, his American filmmaking days, he very much was a director for hire. Um, as such, um, and um, you know, a lot of people did claim that, that Cobra was as much directed by Sylvester Stallone as it was by Chris Um But you know, maybe that was his directorial style, which was to be, you know, very involved. yeah, um, and yeah. yeah, collaborative exactly. Uh, and I think. Maybe that came across, but also as well is um, although not having a, a history in it. Um, Cosmatos um, was a huge fan and was a huge admirer of um, the Italian spaghetti western movies. Um, and you know what what you've got to sort of appreciate with, with with Tombstone is is the western as a genre in 1993 was dead. You know, westerns weren't being made anymore. They they had their time, and you know they were seen as something that you didn't really sort of have anymore. And then when Dances with Wolves got made, um, it kind of it opened it up, and people of started saying, oh well, you know maybe Westerns a Jew, you know a Jew a comeback, and that's how films like this and um, and why we were given the license to go. And then because of the success and the perceived success of films like Tombstone, you then got Unforgiven and. You know, it kind of happened a little bit, I and mean, then it, it it fizzled out again. Um, but there's there's definitely a lot of those Western
2: tropes in it. Yeah, and I mean, I I I think what's what's interesting about that is it, it it does have a lot of those Western tropes, but the I like the fact that it's it's not just focused on on the one character. It's not just like the man, with their name. It's not just Django. It's um, I mean, it is it is Kurt Russell's film, but I mean, Fel Kilmer plays a very, very strong role in it. Mm. And um, I mean, I, I would even say that the film actually weakens when Bill Patton and Sam Elliott leave the film, basically within about two minutes of each other. Um, it, I, I, I think that while the narrative does become kind of like vengeance-driven and I mean, the... The, the last 20 minutes there is some really really kick ass stuff in it. I I was enjoying the relationships, uh, the, the the relationship between Elliott and Bill Paxton and um, uh, and Kurt Russell, uh, and, and it was a shame when that went and those two were kind of replaced by generic yeah. guys Shock and I yeah. Uh, I think
1: yeah. I... I think the, the film, a little bit, and maybe this was a criticism of um, Jar's script, is it, it doesn't seem to know when to end. There there yeah. are... I mean, spoiler alert, but this is a 20-year-old movie. Um, The 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 shootout where... I think it's clever the fact that the OK Corral shootout is in the middle, you know? And you yeah. know, the shootout of the OK Corral is built up to be this big, huge thing where... In reality, it was it wasn't the end of something; it was the start of something, and that's what this movie shows. That all the, the legends and the stories that you hear about the Gunfight the OK Corral were, you know, it's become a stuff of legend, and maybe you know they don't actually know that this is what happened and this is what preceded it. But the the face-off between Johnny Ringo and when Kurt Russell Wyatt Earth is kind of. He's, he's talking to a very ill um, Doc, uh, and it's at that moment where he, he, you know, he's saying to him, you know, I've done all this, you know, I've I finally found what I wanted to do. You know, I, I want to be with this woman, um, and it's the it's this realization where he says, and there's a, there's a wonderful line that he says to uh, to Doc, and he says, "I can't beat him, can I?"
2: Yeah, yeah. And Doc
1: simply, it, it, there's a there's a moment where the camera lifts over, it doesn't go from the side, it lifts over the top of Doc, and he looks away and looks up. And it's the realisation from Doc of, no, not only no, you can't, he says to him, no, you can't. And it's not just a, no, you can't, it's no, he can't, can he? Yeah i can though and yeah, then yeah. There's a, there's a, the next bit is where you see him walking in and you see uh, michael being sort of stood up against the tree and there's a great directorial cinematography um shot of where he's walking in and he you know jaringo says oh, i didn't think you were going to show and you get the oh, great yeah. i'm your huckleberry line and but as he says that, he comes into focus from the shadow. Mm. And it's like, fucking hell. And then that whole scene is just played out magnificently. And I've actually got a... I'm going to go back on another... and it, It's strange, this. I'm going to go back on another nostalgic kick here. Tombstone was the first 15 film I saw at the cinema, and I was 11. Oh, wow. <laughs> I snuck in to see it um, because I, I fucking wanted to see a Western on the big screen. So I snuck in to see it. Um, and I remember, I, I vividly remember this scene. And I remember it because after the film finished, um, the guy who was sat next to me just started clapping at the end of the film and turned around and put his arm around me. And the guy must have been about 26, 27. And he was there on his own and I was there on my own as well. Yeah. Um, and he put his arm around me, and I thought, what, What's this guy doing? And he went, <laughs> Did you enjoy that? And I was like, Yeah. He went, And he put sort of laughed. He like, During that whole last shootout scene, your hand was gripped against my leg. i
2: was like, Bloody Oh, hell. God,
1: sorry. He went, Don't worry about it, man. It's a great film. And I literally, I must have sort of leaned forward on my seat and thought I was holding onto the armrest. And what I was actually doing was clutching onto his leg, um, <sighs> which might have a little bit strange 11 year old in a 15 year old 15 film and grabbing a strange man's leg (laughs) Uh, but yeah I vividly remember that scene and it it, it stayed with me and the reason why I wanted to go and see it was do you remember a a TV show that was on in the UK so sorry US listeners this is going to mean nothing to you but UK listeners this might mean something to you Um, called Movies Games and Videos oh
2: god yeah yeah yeah
1: now this was a TV show which was aimed primarily at kind of, I'd say, 15 to 20-year-olds. And it was all on a Saturday morning at around... Saturday
2: kind of like around midday, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: it was around sort of 10 to 12. It was after the kids' programmes had finished and when the people who'd been out on a Friday night had probably woken up with a bit of a hangover. and it Basically, it covered what it, it, it said it was going to cover. It covered a couple of movies, a couple of games that were coming out and um, some music stuff. Um, and I remember seeing a thing on Tombstone, and the bit that got me was they were talking to Kurt Russell. They were talking to um, Sam Elliott and Powers Boothe uh, and then when they came to talk to Val Kilmer about it, because it was during, it was on set stuff they were talking to him. Um, he was he was still doing the voice, and he was sat with doing this whilst doing this interview, talking about his character. But he wasn't answering any of the questions they were asking him. He was yeah. just sat spinning round um, the, uh, the cup on his hand and doing all the cup things on his hand as the guy was talking to him. And he it's kept cool. coughing. Um, and it wasn't until years later I saw interview with Kurt Russell and they said, you know, was Val Kilmer difficult to work with? And they said, on an, and he said, um, uh, on, an, on a personal level, he said the man is a nightmare to work with. He said, "Or he was then." He said, he was, "He was a nightmare to work with." He said, "Because you never spoke to Val, you spoke to Doc, yeah. he
0: said, and
1: he was one of those annoying people. He stayed in character the entire fucking time." Yeah. He said, "But on an actor's point of view, you've got to go. Well, you know that's a that's a commitment, and it is a hell of a performance from him. You know, it's it's his taxi driver. You know, it's it." it I think a lot of Val Kilmer's issues in his career as they've gone on is he knows he's never going to better that performance. No matter what he does, he's never going to better that performance. But he's not got the cushion of people are always going to remember him for that performance because it doesn't get the the credence that it should um, get. Um, And this one films where it's, it's become a classic. Um, of its genre and it's become a classic years gone by because, you know, people like us constantly wonder about how brilliant it is. Um, and I think that, that that maybe the fact that Val Kilmer had a period in sort of the early uh, 90s where he was so good up to kind of heat and then since then it's kind of all drifted a little bit.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he is, he is absolutely fantastic. And, I mean, i, 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 I really like, um, just moving on from Val, Val Kilmer as well, I mean, I really like the way that the film it takes quite a long time for... Um, for uh, to kind of ramp up the kind of the antagonist protagonist thing. Like, the fact that an awful lot of it is, is—is like, the, the cowboys are around and they're not just like screaming psychopaths all the way all the way through it, it builds up quite nicely and the fact that they don't really have that much problem with Erp at first you yeah. know uh, with well it's um I, I i do like that uh, they uh, the, the like michael bean's relationship with al Kilmer, where like towards the end like uh, in their conversation michael Mike, uh, bean says like you know, I've, I haven't got. I've got no quarrel with you. You know, it's just like, I, I. I like the way the bad the bad guys are set up, and the you know, like Powers Boob's character. If he was sober, he probably wouldn't have shot the fuck uh, the 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 sheriff. No, I, I,
1: I think also that's 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 a good kind of tactic because you don't you don't tend to get that as much with westerns. The fact that a lot of these guys, I mean, the, the two things that I think I pull from Tombstone that I think you don't get. That you didn't get from Westerns before is one. Most of them couldn't shoot a gun for shit. You know they could fire it, but they couldn't aim it, which is why when you got somebody who could aim it, they'd become so notorious, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Joy Ringo and like um, like Doc. And um, I also well, it, it pulled in the fact that the majority of them and the majority, a lot of people in this time had quite damaging drug dependencies. I mean hurts wife, well, not wife, partner. Um, is a an opium addict
2: essentially, which is hilarious. I mean, God, I don't, I don't know the actress who played her, but God bless her, because like every single scene she's in, she either has to look just pissed off <laughs> yeah. or, or she's in need of a hit. Like they, they, she never, I don't think, I, she maybe smiles once in the entire film. It's like it's quite something just how kind
1: of like reprehensible she is yeah she's She's. the thing is, is <laughs> as well you know you've got all these people doing you know stupid or um, taking risks and doing sort of stuff around wire and all he wants to do is he wanted to go to this town and make a bit of money and live you know happily with his brothers and his brothers partners but He's got his best friend is basically an antagonistical, dying drunk. Yeah. You've got his wife, who's a, an opium addict. You've then got this temptress that comes in that you know he tries to kind of avoid, but accepts the fact that he's no longer in love with his wife, partner or whatever she actually is, that he now loves her. And then you've got his brothers that he keeps telling them, don't get involved in this, it's not our fight don't get involved, let's go, let's go. And then they get involved. And there's eventually, there's, a, there's a, the, the moment when Morgan dies is the moment where he kind of snaps. And it's, that's it. That's, that's it.
2: I'm fucking done with this. Um, and Well, that's you called down the thunder, now you got it. Yeah. yeah which is one of the best lines ever, frankly. Yeah,
1: it, it, it's, I mean, it, it, it's it's such a, a great movie. I mean, the, like all the films are great. Even Bill Paxton, a man who is void of any acting talent whatsoever, um, who seems to have got by on the fact that he could be really entertaining by being really bad, he's actually quite good in this. Mm. You know, and Powers Bouvier is an actor I always think should have got a lot more recognition than he did. Yeah. Um, he's brilliant as well. You know, he played that kind of smarmy or quite well. Billy Zane plays Billy Zane in it. You know, it's yeah, it's a it's a it's it really is a great film.
2: It, it yeah, it is just it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and it kind of reminds me of Untouchables in a way of just like again how like I said with uh, Second Son, Second, so- Second so- about how you like spending time with these characters, mm. and, and 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 I mean like the the bad guys are interesting characters in themselves, and it's also just epically badass at points, like yeah. like it's, it's just towards the end where um like the the final montage of them kind of like cleaning everything up and it's just um uh, kind of when are on the horses and they just shake hands with each other while riding the horses
1: yeah. and they're not riding them slow either they're riding them quite fast uh, it's that that must be a skill in itself
2: yeah um, yeah yeah absolutely
1: so that that kind of brings a close to our our George P because Matt is, um
2: marathon. Um, and, and sorry, what a way to end a marathon with a film with an end credit sequence which is just like five minutes of the lead characters walking, walking. and <laughs> looking badass.
1: Yeah, and also, well, the, this this film, um, I would say goes down as having the co- greatest collection of facial hair known to man. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone has beautiful and wonderful facial hair and as anyone who's ever met me will know, I love facial hair. It makes makes the world better. Um, I adore this movie. Uh, I've had a lot of fun with our George Matt marathon. Um, I think what we've established is he's not certainly not an auteur, um, but he's made some some entertaining and one absolutely brilliant film. Whether or not he made it or not is is, is debatable. <laughs> absolutely. Um, right. So we do have a few questions before we um. Or we we close out um, our first one, uh, which is from a few days ago, which is cool. If you want to, don't just wait till we ask for the questions. Send us questions, send them to the Twitter feed, or email them in, uh, and we, you know we'll we'll do them on the show. We will we, we'll look back on them. So from Team um, Zizu on um, Twitter or Marcus Albert, he says, question for Dude and the Monkey: I prefer the 1997 remake of *The Elite to It's Kubrick's 1962. Is there any remakes, not sequels?
2: You prefer? Oh shit, there's a question. There's a question. Good but Marcus.
1: Um, um ooh, remakes that you prefer. I um well, the thing. Um I think of course It, yeah. it is the obvious one. I I certainly prefer that thing. The the, yeah, the thing with the blaze is a great movie, but uh, the thing's a better movie. Really. Um there's got to be some. There's got to be fucking some out there. Um, I know it's blasphemous to say it, but um, I probably, uh, because of my Scorsese and DiCaprio fetish, I think i have probably prefer Departed to Infernal Affairs. I love Infernal Affairs, but I really like the Departed more than most people. I think
2: it gets a bit of a rough ride. I think I agree with that, actually. Um... I suppose I could cheat and say, in a way, Ross of the Planet of the Apes is uh, a better film than uh, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. I'd agree um, with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, man. That's a really, really difficult question. I'm just because I know there are some. Um, it wasn't he a remake of LA take
1: It was, yes. Good call. Yes. Um, very much so.
2: Yeah, I, I, I did.
1: I'd agree with, with, with that for certain that it heats a much better movie. Um, yeah, good one, that one. Um, um, there's, there, there's, there's a fucking glaring obvious one we're missing isn't there. But yeah, I would say we've, we've covered some there. We now have another uh, question from uh, Glenn T. Chapman, which says, um, who would you cast in the Western Expendables and what um, roles would they play? Actors still have to be alive.
2: Western Expendables. Yeah,
1: now what I'm going to do here is I'm going to say that I'm I'm going to cheat with this question and kind of flip it around and make it a little bit easier to to answer. Um, And we'll go for the Expendables 1. So you need um, a leader guy, um, his right-hand man, so you've got the Sylvester Stallone leader guy, you've got his right-hand man which is the Jason Statham, um, and a bad guy, and I want a one who will start with the good guys
2: and then go to the bad guys, the Dolph Longham character.
1: So, can you, can you, have you got yours?
2: Um, I didn't even see this tweet. Fuck. Um, I need to check this tweet. more.
1: Um, I'll
2: give mine. Right. Um, the thing about the
1: westerns expendables thing is I've decided to instead of trying to find people who were in westerns. I've gone for actors who I think would look cool in a Western. Uh, Because the obvious one there would be, go, the Sylvester Stallone character, or, well, that can be Clint Eastwood. You know, and that's a little bit too fucking obvious. So and I've kind of played around with this and gone. The first one I have as the Sylvester Stallone character, so the sort of slightly ageing, but the one I've gone for is a little bit younger. I've gone for Thomas Jane, I think he'd look pretty fucking cool in a hat. And with a bit of a fucking... A bit of a, a kind of western moustache. I think that'd look pretty cool. Um, and my... Sort of his right-hand man, I've gone for Ben Foster. Because he was very good in 310 humour. Um My evil guy is going to be Nick Nolte. Because Nick Nolte makes everything better. Um, my... He starts off... Um, Good, then goes bad, then becomes good again. I'm gonna go with um, who can we have here in a western? I'm gonna oh fuck! I'm a little bit stuck on this one though. I'm a little bit stuck with this guy. I'll come come back to me in a second. I'll get it. Yeah.
2: You mm, got any? Okay. I'm thinking the. Good guy goes bad. I would say I I'm actually gonna go for Taylor Kitsch um, because I really, really like I because I really really like John Carter, A. And B, I don't know. I just I think it would be nice for him to kind of exercise both of his charismatic side and maybe have a chance to play evil. Um, that I, I I would be down for that. Um Uh, probably wouldn't be able to get away with the voice, but I'd like to see Vincent Cassell as the um, as the, uh, the 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 leader. Um, oh, that would that'd be good. That would be that good. Would be yeah. Um, in fact, uh, in fact
1: uh, I'm gonna steal that. I'm gonna have Vincent my, Cassell as my. He was good. Then he went bad. Then he went good again. I think that could work. That oh no! Wait, no well. no! Sorry, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna change that completely. I'm gonna go for Mads Mikkelsen as that character. So he starts out oh, good, good, then becomes
2: a bastard, and then becomes good again. Actually, I'll tell you what, I'll have Clive Owen as my leader, and I'll have Vincent Cassell uh, as his backup guy. Oh, nice.
1: Nice. Yeah,
2: I'm happy with that.
1: Cool. Um, right, uh, what else we got? Um, do, 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 do. Uh, wait, do you have another question? Um Oh, um, uh, Steve, Derrick, uh, sorry, Steve Dixon, um, you have to make a real-life version of The Simpsons. Who do you cast?
2: Oh. Um.
1: Um. That's difficult. That's difficult because they're kids. So we can pull them from any generation, I'd say, here. We don't have to just cast them from people as, what is it? So We can pull them from anywhere. So, but... I'm gonna throw in Macaulay Culkin as Bart. I was thinking Culkin, genuinely. Yeah. Yeah, that that is work as Bart. Lisa. Um I'm gonna I'm, I'm I'm sorry, but I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna go um, Lindsay Lohan when she was a child actress, because she could act then.
2: That's pretty solid. I'd maybe go Chloe X. Oh, yeah, it's
1: Lisa. Yeah, that works better. That works <laughs> that works very well. Um
2: Marge Kathleen Turner, yes. in the 80s. Back when she was fucking hot. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, Marge has got a bit of spiciness to it. But... Yeah, she and... flashed a boost for
1: the entire town once. Um, yeah.
2: um,
1: Homer. God, man. Homer's the difficult one. Isn't it? Um, You've got a big guy who's funny. Um, I'd say John Candy. Yeah, I'd, I'd say John Candy. If you, John Candy, if you lost a little bit of weight, <laughs> sure. So yeah, I'd, I, I'd say I'd say John Candy if you lost a little bit of weight. Or no, I'd say John Candy. Yeah, we'll go with John Candy. Um, and Sophia Coppola from the Second Godfather movie can play Maggie.
2: Nice. Um. So yeah. Uh,
1: Cool. Um, I, I don't think we've got any other questions. I think that was. Um, oh, have you actually, got some?
2: Actually, yeah. Um, Mr. a code. It's Brad. Um, he asks: Are studios right to mismarket a film in trailers to protect their investments? Um, yes. No. Ooh. I, I think they are. I think studios can can market a film however
1: they want. If people are stupid enough to go and see a movie just based on the trailer they see. And that alone, then I don't think they can afterwards complain about saying, oh, well, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Then don't just fucking don't just watch a two-and-a-half-minute trailer. Actually look at the write-up about it or something like that. You know, there is more out there than the trailer you see either sat on TV or before you watch another movie. Fair play.
2: All right. Fuck it. Yeah, I think you're right.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, cool. Oh, uh, sorry, one oh, more, sorry. Oh, oh, okay. At TGP73,
2: what's the best promotional stunt for a film you can remember? Um. Ooh, that's a good one. Um.
1: Best promotional stunt for a film? I, 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 I think the fake website thing for um, Blair Witch Project was fucking clever. I know it's been done a death since, and I know that... You know, looking back, it seems blatantly obvious, but this is the time where the internet had never been exploited for a movie, and you know, you've got in the Blair Witch Project, you've got a movie that that essentially cost next to nothing to make, um, and what they managed to do with that was create this this unbelievable amount of buzz, um, and turned this little sort of movie that cost them, you know, literally next to nothing. I'm just looking at it now. You've got the movie cost around sort of half a million to make, uh, maybe a little bit more, and it went on to gross sort of 250 300 million. And it was all based around this buzz that they had created via a viral marketing campaign before the word viral marketing even existed.
2: I would, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I would say Facebook for the social network.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The whole. Just, just Facebook.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that, that was that was helped backed up by an incredible trailer as well. Uh, oh God, that social network trailer is fucking amazing.
1: Yeah. Uh, we we did have as well. Uh, are we we're, we're done with questions now. We got questions. Yeah, we are, mate, right, yeah. Well, Thank you very much, listeners, for sending in questions because it's always great. Yeah, no, that. Sure. You know, like I say, keep them going throughout the week, or if you want to send them to the email address, it's dude the monkey at gmail dot com. We have had an email, but um, we've been requested to not read it out because it contains slightly kind of confidential information that the person would have wanted us to to read out. So to give it a general gist uh, of it, uh, rather than just reading it out, uh, it's from one of our listeners, obviously, because he responded to the show. Um, um, But it was based on our talk that we had last week where we spoke about... um, news stories creeping onto film sites stuff like that, now what I'll say here is is the guy who sent it in is a, a writer, that's his job that's what he does um, and he was saying that it's very frustrating from his side because um, he's having to write these types of news stories and he says that he doesn't try and just cut and paste, he tries to put a little bit of his own knowledge and a little bit of his own interpretation into it but he says that it's the simple fact is that his editor um, doesn't care about about what, what, what's going out, um, which is obviously is why we don't want to give away the person's name. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, what I'll say there is um, the description we had last week where we, we both basically shot it down and said that it was silly. Um, to this person, what I would say if I was in your position and I was getting paid to write about film, right, and you know, that was what my job was. If my editor was telling me to write these new stories, i fucking do it. You know, it's that's his job. He's getting told by somebody, his livelihood depends on that, fuck it. You can't really, you, you, you can't poke a finger at him and say, oh, why are you writing this story? Well, because it's his fucking job to write the fucking story. And also, is if spending three, four years writing these stories gets him the chance to do something more than write these stories, or, if writing three or four of these news stories gets him a chance to write one thing that he wants to write and that I want to read, then, fuck it, I'm all power to that. I'm all fucking play for that. You know, he isn't worrying about the hits. His editor is worrying about the hits that his articles get. So, you know, in that circumstances, you know, fuck it, I'd do exactly the same if I was in his position. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, I... I, I... One hundred percent. I've got
1: nothing else to add on that. Right. Well, that is. I think that that nicely wraps up this show. Um, apologies um, if it doesn't sound up the quality. My internet is a bit shoddy at the moment, uh, which I'll be ringing up um, BT and fucking kicking ass because I pay an extortionate amount of money for it not to be shoddy. Um, well, I think we've got another great show. Uh, we're not sure uh, a, what film is going to be next week. We're not sure what our topic discussion is going to be. And we're not sure who our marathon is going to be. So, um, fuck it. We'll, we'll have sorted it out by next week. Um That's it. As I said, uh, you can contact us on Twitter, which is at Dude and the Monkey. Send us questions, give us feedback, anything like that. If you could send out iTunes reviews, that would be brilliant. Because we've already had two and they've been great. If you want to give us a shit iTunes review, by all means give
2: us a shit iTunes review. It just means you're a con. Um, and did you um, also see the email from the email we had the other day from another guy? No, I didn't. No. Ah. Um, uh, John Robinson. No, I didn't. Did, 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 oh, okay. Does did it called wankers? Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. I'm just actually logging into the email account now. Um, ah, John. John. Aha, right. Uh, uh, are we? Are we um, allowed to read this? Uh, I believe so. Um, yeah, I
1: think so. Uh John D. Robinson. Yeah. Is it the? Uh, I get annoyed with one. Um. I don't
2: know about. Because I I actually replied to him about oh, um, something All right. in I'll let I'll, so. I'll,
1: I'll let you do this one because I, I I've not seen this. Yeah.
2: No worries. I'm just going to. Because uh, I I haven't seen the um one that you were talking about. Have you not? So so when I tweeted you the other day saying. Like we got email. I thought you yeah, and you were like yeah, yeah, no, I know. Uh, I thought you were talking about this
1: No, no, you see see this is this is the beauty audience. This is this is what we do. We will we'll say, have you seen this, have you seen this, have you seen this? We'll not actually say what we see. <laughs> we'll leave yeah. That, yeah.
2: We'll leave the all so the magic just happens.
1: You know. This is this is the great radio that you're
2: listening to for free. <laughs> yeah, well
1: definitely. <yeah>, um <laughs> so While while Ian's signing that, what I will say is um if you want to suggest um Barrett's for our marathon, uh, then please do. Um, so far, we do have a couple in there. We've got John Sales and we've got somebody else, which I can't remember who it was, uh, but I do have a couple noted down that we're going to do, and then what essentially we'll do is we'll have a look at the certain things we've got to look at, which is um, availability of the films uh, and how quick we can get them legally, because we don't want to do it anything nasty. Um, and also, as well, um, just sort of tone. Uh, for instance, you know, we won't wanna be doing a uh, a Gasper No Way season and
2: covering irreversible for our Christmas episode. Mm-hmm. But that's right, was... so, go, go, go. Yeah, so John D. Robinson uh writes You sexy bastards. I Why like them already. We made you? Uh, I already like this. Um I gravitated toward this pod thanks to thirty these heroes, but uh but, 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 but I'm not gonna say that the next bit just uh, just in case he doesn't want me to Cosmatos uh, is an icon of 80s cinema thank you for covering his flicks I'm big on Tombstone because was grandiose casting all the uh which you mentioned earlier uh, keep being a and being the real motherfucks on the scene uh, yeah. so that was John Robinson and thank you very much sir.
1: yes well thank you very much for that and thank you very much for listening it's brilliant um, and like I say we do appreciate feedback it shows that people are listening and are enjoying it um, and also let's say if you're not enjoying it, tell us what you're not enjoying it, and we will fucking change it, but you know at least you will tell us um so yeah, I mean that that concludes our episode four,
2: yeah, absolutely, and um, yes, again, shooting way over our estimated ninety minutes a week runtime, but never mind
1: yeah we we're we're, we're 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 actually we're, we're we're beyond the two hour mark, but it, okay. you know, we were talking about Tombstone. let's be honest, you know yeah. This this we'll call this episode four, the director's cut. Yes. So thank you very much guys and um we shall be in your ears again next week. Cheers. Yeah, cool, yeah, we are we are over on that one, aren't we? <laughs> yeah,
2: just a just a tad. Um I I might have to leave you to it actually, bud, because uh that, that took a bit longer than
1: I've got yeah, Right, um uh, cool. Well we'll we'll sort out what we're watching and what we're covering and everything later on in the week, buddy. Yeah, nice one. All right buddy, speak to you soon Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Bye.